Welcome to Sagittarius Eye Audio Edition, Issue 26, Quarter 1, 3306. Word for word, the articles that appear in this quarter's Sagittarius Eye magazine, expertly recorded to keep you entertained and informed, out in the black. Editorial We commanders are by necessity professionals when it comes to patience. The final frontier demands patience from us in traversing, exploring, and making a living in it. For every commander, from a trader repeating the same semi-profitable loop, to a miner firing limpet after limpet to find low-temperature diamonds, a bounty hunter trawling through scores of low-skill marks, or an explorer doing the old honk and scoop, there are no easy fixes, no fast solutions. Engineering a ship to our exacting specifications, for example, is a process that can take days, or even weeks. For all the miraculous acceleration of our lives brought about by the frameshift drive, our galaxy is still incomprehensibly vast. This isn't just true of individual courses of our careers. We must also be patient with the long-standing institutions, such as the Pilots' Federation, that regulate the capabilities of our vessels and our interactions with each other. While we all recognize that the Pilots' Federation provides vital and important base foundations for our work, At times we find ourselves disheartened by the slow and difficult process of innovation. For all that space is an awe-inspiring experience, it can be difficult to wait for new services and major milestones. In recent months, we've asked our readers to be patient with us too, as we've switched to a quarterly schedule. We know it can be hard to wait for something so heavily anticipated, but as commanders we know that the wait can be part of what makes the end result worth it. As producers of this magazine, we make it our promise to fulfill your expectations as best we can. Who knows? Perhaps if we wait long enough, one day we'll find there's enough to write about to let us return to a monthly schedule. For now, though, patience is a useful virtue. Surviving a Trade Community Goal You saw a community goal, an emotional appeal for famine relief, and, being the kind soul you are, you travelled out there in your Type 9. It was a pretty simple run with common goods, and you took out the shield generator to fit in even more. 788 tons at a time ought to make short work of this, you thought, as you dropped into the system. The next thing you remember is coming around from the Remlock Ride of Shame carrying a big insurance bill and no cargo. You weren't even pirated. You were ganked. Your ship and her cargo were destroyed for no other reason than someone simply wants to watch the galaxy burn. You complained to the Pilots' Federation. How can this happen? Where was security? Why was the perpetrator simply free to cruise around Daiso unmolested? The Pilots' Federation simply shrugs at these complaints and gives you no meaningful answer. Local security tells you, we can't be everywhere. The truth dawns on you. The police are minutes away when seconds matter, and the much-vaunted Advanced Tactical Response, or ATR, with their powerful weapons, takes so long to show up that they may as well not exist. You are on your own. You can either whine on the usual Pilots' Federation forums, as many do, or you can learn how to do something about it. Fundamentally, 
Any event that attracts easy targets like trade ships is a magnet for the undesirables known as gankers or murder hobos. They are fully aware of the Pilots' Federation complete indifference to what they are doing. In fact, they are rewarded for it in the form of small boosts to their combat rank, and also of the ineffectiveness of local law enforcement, even in systems that are considered high security. Some of these pilots might profess a higher motivation than a simple orgy of destruction, such as opposition to a superpower. For example, the blockade on the community goal to bring supplies to build the FNS Nevermore. But for the trader, it's all the same. You get interdicted by one of them, and your ship is destroyed. It doesn't matter why they did it, you still end up taking an unpleasant Remlock trip, ending in a similarly unpleasant insurance bill. But it needn't be this way. With a little work and some situational awareness, you can entirely avoid ever taking a Remlock ride during a community goal. Step 1. Equip to survive. The fundamental truth is that the Ganker will have a highly engineered ship, a better frameshift drive interdictor than the authorities, better weapons than the authorities, and better shields than the authorities. A squishy, shieldless Type 9 simply doesn't stand a chance. Don't even consider shieldless builds. Don't consider weakly shielded builds either. The second largest module slot should be the smallest shield you ever consider, and use A-rated shields. Fit as many A-rated shield boosters as you can power. After you've fitted the shield boosters, if you have any remaining utility mount, fit a chaff launcher. Consider a heatsink launcher too, if you have a very large ship like a cutter. Do not neglect the hull. Use only military-grade composites, and if you are using a ship such as an anaconda with restricted military slots, or any ship with enough module slots, fit a hull reinforcement and a module reinforcement package. But what about fighting back? What about offensive capabilities? Don't bother. If you fight, you will die. Offensive capabilities on your trade ship are a waste of power that could be going to a shield booster or another piece of defensive equipment. Even without engineering, a trade ship with A-rated shields, A-rated shield boosters and military-grade composites has enough survivability to seriously increase the trader's chances of escaping. The more the better, though. Consider obtaining prismatic shields and engineer those shields, shield boosters and hull modules. Every megajoule of extra shield strength is valuable. Engineering for reinforced shields is the best bet for extra shield strength and it's generally accepted that for shield boosters, heavy duty is the best option. If you have many shield boosters though, engineer half of them for heavy duty and employ resistance augmentation for the other half. As an example as to what is achievable, consider the humble Type 7 with a 5A shield generator and 4 shield boosters. The shield generator is engineered using the reinforced modification, two of the boosters with the heavy duty mod, and the remaining boosters with resistance augmented. This build boasts 900 megajoules of raw shield strength and 1,190 points of hull strength, and can still carry 214 tons of cargo. This is a Type 7 that has a good chance of escaping even from a wing of gankers. It can power the entire build with a single unengineered 5A power plant. Even partly engineered shields and shield boosters are worth the effort 
and partial engineering only requires commonly available materials. Don't neglect the power distributor and thrusters. Fit the largest A-rated thrusters and distributor that your ship will take. Speed is also a determining factor in survivability. Engineer the thrusters with dirty drag drives, if you can. There has been a recent trend that some murder hobos will equip with what are colloquially known as Grom bombs, unguided missiles supplied by Yuri Grom that have the particularly unpleasant side effect of causing the frameshift drive of the target to reboot. This will impair your ability to escape, so consider at least one point defense turret to reduce the chances of a hit by such a missile. For large ships, point defense is likely to be of more use than chaff, and you can fit multiple point defense turrets. Step 2. Be aware. Too many commanders like to engage the super cruise assist, kick back and catch up on the latest Holovid series while they trade. Doing this at a community goal is a suicidal tendency. Situational awareness is an important factor in survival. The presence of other Pilots Federation commanders in a system running a community goal should not be a surprise, and it is best to make a habit of keeping track. Make sure you select every Pilots Federation target, as merely selecting them will tell you what kind of ship it is, and this alone can give you a hint as to the commander's intentions. To that end, make sure that your preferred interface mapping has fingertip settings for cycling your ship's target around other ships, and, more importantly, also for cycling around just hostile ships. Quickly selecting the latter on your scanner can be a lifesaver should you find yourself under attack. Any unidentified commander should be treated with suspicion. Certain ships should be treated with extreme suspicion. Any further lance, for example, is guilty until proven innocent. You need to go on red alert if you see one and watch it very carefully or just jump out. You should also be suspicious of any ship that is not normally used for trade and also of some, for example, clipper, cutter and python that can serve as both a trader and as a ganker. One of the first things you should do when dropping into a star system, any system, not just your destination, is to check the list of Pilots Federation members in system. Your ship will give you that list. Make sure you know how to do this. Check it for known troublemakers. There are certain commanders who are notorious, and it will be helpful for you to know who these people are, and whether you're sharing supercruise with them. You don't need to scan any ships to get this list. Step 3. Don't fly in a straight line. We covered this in issue 24's article, When a Straight Line Isn't Shortest, so the point won't be laboured here. However, some further refinements to the ideas raised in this article should be introduced at this point. Start by flying in the opposite direction, away from your destination. Keep close to the star until the star is directly between you and the destination station, and therefore the shipping lane and probably most of the gankers. Then fly directly away from the star with the station also directly behind you. Do this until you are past the orbit line for the planet the destination station belongs to. You may even want to go as far as the orbit line for the next planet out. Then start following this orbit line. As our previous article explained, this won't be that costly in time as, away from any planetary or stellar bodies, your supercruise speed will be very high. Any ganker will now have to detach themselves from the shipping lane and it will become more obvious on your scanner if they are coming for you. 
The orbit line for the next planet out will also take you on a curving trajectory, which will mean you will end up approaching your destination station from behind, and in the last third or so of your journey, as you begin to spiral in towards your destination, you will be facing the shipping lane and any ships there. This does a couple of useful things. It allows you to scan every ship between the star and your destination system. Now you know who is flying what ship, so you can check ships for wanted status, a sure sign of a ganker, and you can check if ships have a frame shift drive interdictor, another warning sign. Prioritize scanning suspicious ship types like Ferdelances or any other combat vessel. It means any ship in the shipping lane would have to come out of the shipping lane and get behind you to interdict you. Most gankers won't bother given easier targets, and if they do, it makes it easier to see on your scanner. If you see a suspicious ship heading your way, consider dropping out of supercruise altogether to prevent the possible interdiction from ever happening. You'll need to judge how long to remain in normal space, as if the suspicious ship is coming for you. No doubt they will try to drop in on your low wake. You want to time your exit to be happening just about this time. Keep a careful eye out and don't let the ship you saw ever get behind you. Step 4. Know your escape route. Despite the best precautions, at some point you are going to be interdicted so you need a plan for when this happens. The first and most paramount directive is never to try to evade an interdiction if it's a Pilots Federation member interdicting you. If you see a hollow square on the scanner as the hostile that's interdicting you, immediately throttle to zero and submit. Firstly, gankers spend all day interdicting people. They know how to win an interdiction and have plenty of practice at it. Secondly, gankers have engineered frameshift drive interdictors far better than any system security ship. Just because you once evaded the police does not mean you can evade a ganker's interdiction. If you don't submit, you will be forcefully wrenched out of supercruise and you'll have to wait a long time for your frameshift drive to become available again, during which time you will be fired upon. If you submit, your frameshift drive will cool down in mere seconds. Then the question is, should you go back into supercruise, low wake, or jump to another system altogether, high wake? The answer is nearly always to high wake. There are a couple of good reasons for this. You cannot be mass locked when you high wake. If the ganker is in a cutter and you are in a type 7, it will take so long to get back into supercruise you will probably die before your frameshift drive charges up due to the mass lock. However, you are immune to mass lock when high waking. The ganker probably doesn't have a wake scanner, won't know where you've gone, and can't follow you. On the other hand, if you low wake, you will probably be interdicted again. Even if the ganker has a wake scanner, a drop at the high wake destination, a bit of boost in normal space, and another random high wake will make you nigh untraceable. High waking does have a downside though. You must now run the gauntlet all over again since you lost all your progress towards the station by jumping to another system. You at least have both your ship and cargo intact, and you have the time to wait until your shields fully recharge before trying again. There is also the question of what to do while you're waiting for the frameshift drive cooldown and then the spool up. The accepted wisdom is to put full power to shields. 
have four pips and shields and two in engines and zero in weapons, and keep boosting towards your attacker until the frameshift driver's fully spooled up for the jump. Four pips to system will offer a significant boost to your shields. It effectively adds more than 50% more strength, which is huge, especially if you have them engineered. The remaining two pips in engines should allow you to boost reasonably often, and boosting towards your attacker means they frequently have to turn to attack you, reducing the amount of time they can keep weapons on you. Running away in a straight line, on the other hand, gives your attacker a nice easy shot, and worse still, it allows them to shoot out your engines if your shields go down. That said, if in a ship significantly faster and or more agile than your attacker, a better strategy might be to boost away from them with flight assist off and employ random vertical, lateral and roll inputs while the frameshift drive charges. Then, when it's charged, align to your target system, flip flight assist back on and hit boost to jump out. This is a favorite tactic with an engineered Imperial courier and some pilots of these love to broadcast the phrase meep meep in a mockery of the slower ship. The origins of this phrase are lost to history. What about low waking back into supercruise? Low waking, so long as you're not mass locked, does have a significantly faster frameshift drive charge time. You don't have to line up with a particular destination to do it, and you don't lose your progress towards your destination. There are some circumstances where low waking is indeed acceptable, but consider very carefully before doing so. If you are in a strong ship, such as a cutter, with engineered prismatic shields and a reinforced hull, you might nearly always consider low waking instead. The only thing that mass locks a cutter is another cutter, so as long as your opponent is in any other ship, your frameshift drive will charge very quickly. A cutter with good shields can also take several interdictions. At a recent community goal, a cutter belonging to the East India Company with engineered prismatic shields suffered no fewer than six interdictions in one journey, but only lost a single ring of shields in the process. The cutter in question had 2.7 gigajoules of shield strength and a very strong engineered hull while carrying 722 tons of cargo. With these kinds of stats, low waking and continuing becomes perfectly practical. If you choose to low wake, there are some additional techniques which can prevent the annoyance of repeated interdictions. Firstly, boost towards the attacker when you frameshift drive is charged. It is likely that when you go into supercruise, the ganker will also immediately charge their frameshift drive. However, you enter supercruise in the same direction as you were going in normal space, so it is likely that the ganker will be facing away from you and will have to turn around to get behind you again, giving you valuable time. A second technique is to immediately drop out of supercruise the moment you enter it. When the ganker gets into supercruise, they will not see you on their scanner, and it's quite likely they will find another victim before they find your low wake. Remain in normal space for 30 seconds to a minute to give time for the ganker to fly somewhere else and to allow you to recover some shield strength. At this point, turn back to the station and resume your journey. It must be stressed, however, only low wake if you are certain that you're not mass locked and you have a very strong ship that can survive being interdicted multiple times. As a final note, traders are strongly encouraged to view the holovid made by Commander Rinsler, called the Get Good Guide to Trading in Open, on this subject. It makes many of the points discussed here and also demonstrates these techniques. 
While there have been a couple of changes since Rinsler made his tutorial, such as the Type 7 now having a more capable power plant, everything demonstrated in this video is still pertinent. What are brown dwarfs? Humans like neat categories such as star, planet, and gas giant, and have devised criteria for classifying bodies as such. Nature, it turns out, isn't so picky. We are reminded of this whenever we talk about brown dwarfs. They are neither stars nor planets. They do have some qualities of each, as well as being big gas giants. So what are they exactly? All stars are born out of massive clouds of gas and dust. Their lifespans are determined by their mass, and thus the amount of fuel they have. Stars are massive and hot enough to fuse chemical elements, mostly hydrogen, into others, thereby generating radiation that manifests as heat and light. More massive stars burn their fuel quickly, whereas lower mass stars burn it considerably more slowly, often over a hypothetical trillion years. A star ignites when its formative glass cloud collapses due to its own gravitational pressure or some outside force, such as the shock wave of a supernova blast, to the point where the mass of the core reaches the temperature and pressure needed for hydrogen fusion. But what happens if such a cloud core just isn't dense or massive enough to form a fully-fledged star? What if the resulting ball of gas, called a protostar, lacks the final punch so to speak, to begin the process of fusing hydrogen. For a protostar to begin hydrogen fusion, it needs a core temperature of over 100 million Kelvin. That's a very high bar, which requires immensely strong gravitation. The generally accepted lower mass limit is 8% of the mass of Sol. Below this, hydrogen fusion just isn't possible, as the protostar's core temperature and pressure are too low. Astrophysicists have adopted a different scale for such protostars, one based on the mass of Jupiter. Protostars with between 13 and 80 Jupiter masses become brown dwarfs. 13 Jupiter masses is an important threshold for astronomers, because above that point, another interesting thermonuclear process begins, the fusing of deuterium. Deuterium, sometimes known as heavy hydrogen, has a neutron and a proton in its nucleus, unlike normal hydrogen, which only has a single proton. The fusion of deuterium is one of the very simplest of fusion reactions and requires only a fraction of the temperature needed for hydrogen fusion. Translated into mass and gravitational pressure, this temperature requirement, give or take a couple of tens of thousands of Kelvin, depending on the surrounding dust, debris, and magnetic fields, yields the 13 Jupiter threshold. These protostars are hot and dense enough to fuse deuterium with the proton into helium-3. It's also the reasons why explorers find some very big gas giants to be rich in helium. The fusion process may have stopped long ago, but the helium is retained. Looking for a suitable classification for these substellar objects, 20th century astronomers considered a number of terms. Dwarf seemed appropriate, as the cosmos had already seen red dwarfs and white dwarfs. They weren't white, though. Rather, they were very, very dim. 
The terms red and black, on the other hand, were already occupied. So in 1975, the astronomer Jill Tarter came up with the name Brown Dwarf. In the absence of better alternatives, this name has stuck, and it is certainly in keeping with astronomers' knack for dramatic terms. One colloquial description is that brown dwarfs are stars that didn't quite make it. And while that's not very scientific, it is quite accurate. Imagine a gas giant 80 times the mass of Jupiter that's capable of maintaining its own quintillion-ton fusion reactor over billions of years, and you have a picture. However, it's still not considered a proper star. It's still a dim, dwarf protostar incapable of maintaining the thermostatic equilibrium that would put it on the main sequence of stars. Are brown dwarfs really brown in color? Not really, as most pilots will know. The reason is actually that brown does not truly exist in the optical spectrum. Compared to a star, a brown dwarf emits very little radiation, including visible light. Even compared to a dim red M-class star, it's still comparatively very faint, and many brown dwarfs emit mostly in infrared. The result is a very dark red color, which made them exceedingly difficult to identify from afar, as was the case with Gliese 229b back in 1994. Due to their low radiation output, more complex molecules like methane, carbon monoxide, or even molecular hydrogen can form in their atmospheres. These molecules absorb specific portions of the optical spectrum, namely the more energetic and therefore brighter ones. The result is that many brown dwarfs actually look magenta in color, but the term magenta dwarf would probably not have caught on. You're peering into a computer-aided refractor telescope. How would you know you have just discovered a brown dwarf? As is often the case in optical astronomy, the answer is spectroscopy. With specific prisms, light can be split into its spectral components which can be measured with a spectrometer. Most chemical elements absorb specific wavelengths in the optical spectrum, making it possible to analyze a body's chemical makeup by looking for these absorption lines. If a brown dwarf has a considerable amount of methane in its atmosphere, the spectrometer will reveal this by showing a black line at the appropriate wavelength. One of the earliest methods for identifying a brown dwarf was the so-called lithium test. Lithium is initially abundant in both stars and brown dwarfs. Its fusion temperature lies just below that of hydrogen, so all evolved stars will quickly burn through their lithium deposits, whereas brown dwarfs will retain them. This made distinguishing a star from a brown dwarf possible for early astronomers, although there are other variables like metallicity or magnetic fields that can taint this test. It still was of great use to identify the first generations of brown dwarfs back in the 20th century and laid the groundwork for most scientific works on them. So, if brown dwarfs are not real stars that blow up, collapse, or inflate at the end of their lives, what will their inevitable fate be when their fuel runs out? Deuterium fusion generates energy, although only tiny amounts compared to hydrogen fusion. It's still enough to overcome the dwarf's inward gravitational pressure, so the dwarf will radiate away heat and sunlight until its fuel is used up. In most cases, the reservoirs are thought to last several billion years, depending on the mass. In contrast to main sequence stars, when the fuel is used up, there is no follow-up fusion process. The dwarf simply has no fuel left and fusion ceases. 
With all fusion gone and no other elements to burn, a brown dwarf will then cool over another couple of million years and then become an inert body. That's a fate they will most likely share in many ways with their cousins, the black dwarfs. Black dwarfs in turn are hypothesized white dwarfs that have cooled sufficiently to not radiate any heat or light anymore. Such objects should by all means be next to impossible to detect, except maybe through gravitational astronomy or, as is more usual since the invention of the frameshift drive, by so-called frameshift astronomy. None have been discovered to date. So while brown dwarfs are not true stars, they are thought to share the fate of most low-mass stars. One of the main differences is that, because they don't blow up, eject their masses into interstellar space, or are otherwise consumed by stellar processes, their dead mass does not add to the rejuvenation or recycling of the interstellar medium, which is the basis for a new generation of stars to be born. Early explorers dubbed star systems containing a primary brown dwarf dark systems, and whether that was deliberately accurate or just for drama is unknown, but it's close to the truth for the future of these bodies. Senator Kahino Loren, Obituary For those who killed me, I bear you no ill will. For those who wanted me dead, you have your wish. For those who loved and swore allegiance to me, your service and dedication were the brightest light in the darkness of my life. Do not let my death be the end of what you would see done. My last request is that you always Remember. Salome's Requiem recorded at Panacea Medical Center in HIP 17519A1A. We all know how her story ends. Kaina Tijani Lauren, known to most of us as the elusive and mysterious Salome, was assassinated in the Anum Claw system on the 29th of April, 3303 whilst flying her Imperial Clipper Seven Veils towards a rendezvous in the Tyanisla system. She was interdicted en route, her message and ultimate purpose lost. Born in the year 3275 into a high-ranking Imperial family originally from the Haori system, Kahini was surrounded by wealth and privilege throughout her life, little different from the upbringing of any other children in the privileged upper echelons of the Empire. She was the third daughter of Senator Algreb Loren, himself a controversial figure known principally for the invasion of the Prism system in 3297. As remains common in the Empire today, daughters were used by their high-ranking parents to foster political alliances through arranged marriages. Kahina and her sisters were dutifully groomed for this role, being schooled in imperial etiquette, dress and decorum. As a young woman, Kahina was said to be cold and aloof with an acerbic wit. She was known to support slavery and traditional imperial values. The invasion of Prism was prompted by the discovery of significant deposits of tantalum in the system, demand for which had risen dramatically due to the recently introduced frameshift drive. Settlers on the inhabitable moon Kioni were almost entirely wiped out in an act of genocide committed by Admiral Bryce under the orders from Senator Algreb. The move was not directly challenged by the Federation at the time. 
Once established, Algreb had a palace built on Kioni, the orbital station Hiram's Anchorage, constructed by Mastopolis Mining, served as a refinery and export facility for the Tantalum. To further establish his control, Algreb used his daughters to cement alliances with the leaders of nearby systems. According to sources on PRISM, Kaina schemed to ensure that her eldest sister was married off in her place. A suitable wedding was arranged during 3300, but the event was interrupted when the few remaining settlers, now calling themselves Reclaimists, staged a coup. They murdered Senator Algrib, his wife, his two elder daughters, and most of his entourage. It was believed that Kahina had also perished in the attack. Several reports confirmed that her dead body had been seen in the remains of the Imperial Palace, but no burial ever took place. Prism fell into the hands of the Reclaimists, now a strongly militant group. They were provided with arms and tactical support by the notorious warlord Octavia Quinton, who controlled much of the trade and the surrounding systems. They aimed to sell the system's tantalum to the highest bidder, pitching the Federation and the Empire into a trade war. Precisely what happened to Kahina during this period is a mystery. Several weeks passed before a wide-band message was received by the Imperial Herald News Network purporting to be from Kahina, demanding that Admiral Bryce forcibly reclaim the prison system from the Reclaimists. Admiral Bryce immediately dispatched an Imperial fleet to the system, only to find that a Federal fleet was already in situ, seeking to annex the system and secure the Tantalum reserves. A significant conflict took place in the orbit of Kione as a result. The Federal fleet ultimately withdrew. Kahina returned to Kioni and personally executed the leader of the Reclaimists with a halver dueling blade. Then she adopted her father's mantle, becoming the youngest senator in the Empire at the time at the age of 26. Perhaps more importantly, she'd reclaimed her home. During 3301, Kahina conducted a tour of the Federation at the request of Chancellor Anders Blaine. Despite strong resistance and bureaucratic incompetence from federal officials, Kahina's dry wit and direct style won her unexpected popularity from the general populace of the Sol system, who enjoyed and admired the way she flouted protocol during her visit. Having struck up an unlikely connection with the Federation, Kahina was summoned back to Akanar and made a number of public appearances there. Many speculated that she was making a play for power alongside others as the Empire struggled to select a new Emperor. At the time, Kahina seemed more concerned with securing peace and stability for the PRISM system. She leant heavily on advice from Ambassador Cuthric Delaney on this regard and went so far as to defy Admiral of the Fleet Denton Petraeus, demanding special privileges for the PRISM system. However, it now seems that she was plotting something else for reasons known only to her. On the 21st of July of that year, a security alert was sent from the suite that Kahina had been occupying whilst on Akanar. The suite was found empty, with no sign of habitation, nor of Kahina herself. Many assumed the Patriot himself was behind her sudden disappearance, but he vehemently denied it. Kahina's ship was impounded and searched, and her tiara was recovered alongside an emblem bearing the word Salome on one side, and a symbol reputedly belonging to an infamous organization known as the Dark Wheel on the other. Many assumed that she had been seduced into joining the folly of those who embark on the fruitless quest for Raxler.
Gehina, now cloaked in her mysterious pseudonym Salome, abandoned both her senatorial responsibility and her allegiance to the Empire, becoming the figurehead of a shadowy cabal known as the Children of Raxler. This further cemented the assumption that she had embarked on a foolish treasure hunt. What actually prompted this dramatic change of focus is unclear, but most sources now agree that, unlikely as it seemed at the time, Kaina had stumbled upon some genuine information and gone into hiding in order to investigate it. A year passed with no news of her or her whereabouts, though it is known that the children of Raxla were involved in a number of deep space exploration voyages into three notable regions of the galaxy. The Formidine Rift, Hawking's Gap, and the Conflux. Salome herself even appeared at Beagle Point, indicating that she had voyaged all the way across the galaxy in her search. Three days after an assassination attempt on Admiral Denton Petraeus in the Samia system, there were sporadic reports of a Commander Salome in the vicinity. None were substantiated, but a month later the Imperial Senate announced that Senator Kaina Tijani Loren had been arrested and charged in connection with the attempt on the Admiral's life. Both Petraeus and Princess Ashling Duval publicly denounced Kaina during this period. Kaina was formally stripped of her senatorial rank and transported to the PRISM system for trial. She was found guilty of masterminding the assassination attempt and sentenced to life imprisonment within Kunz Asylum in the Daibo system. Many protested the verdict, but it was upheld. The children of Raxler launched an attack on the flagship of Admiral Denton Petraeus and the Eotiensis system in retaliation, leading many to brand them as terrorists. In keeping with her usual flair for the unexpected, Kahina's prison convoy was destroyed en route to her incarceration by forces unknown. The attack was thorough, not even leaving escape pods intact. Kahina was presumed dead a second time. From this point, the intrigue continued to thicken. Kahina, once again masquerading as Salome, reappeared and was identified as complicit in the theft of meta-alloys from Danielle's progress in the Maya system, collaborating with individuals from across the Federation and the Alliance. The Empire took a dim view of this thievery and ultimately issued a 5 million credit bounty on her, with instructions to shoot on sight. At about the same time, encrypted messages were received from the Coal 70 sector. Salome and her companions were revealed to be hiding in the 46 Eridani system and were chased towards the bubble by hundreds of bounty hunters, including the notorious Commander Besieger himself in the employ of Admiral Petraeus, who eventually interdicted and destroyed Salome's ship. In part due to her sacrifice, her companions arrived safely at their destination in the Tyanisla system, which, in turn, led to the revelation of the Tiorge listening post-logs. These logs revealed that Gahina, as Salome, had been working to reveal a vast conspiracy perpetrated by powers operating above the Federation, Empire and the Alliance, and manipulating the powers for the purpose of ensuring humanity's survival in the face of an impending cataclysmic invasion by the Thargoids. Known euphemistically as the Club, this group is believed to be composed of senior figures across the breadth of humanity's influence, with an agenda that spans centuries. Although Salome did reveal their conspiracy, their members' identities remain unknown to this day. Months after her death, a message was recovered that led to the Panacea Medical Center, a facility orbiting planet A1A in the HIP-17519 system. 
Audio logs from Salome were hidden at the facility, providing a post-mortem message to her followers and an explanation of her actions. Clearly, she had known she was in danger of being killed. The logs confirmed the conspiracy, but also revealed a troubled woman, ill at ease with the quest she had carried out and the guilt she bore for both the Battle of Chioni and subsequent deaths of fellow conspirators and followers. The weight of responsibility had worn heavily on her, and she no longer valued her own life towards the end. Kahina Tijani Loren's legacy remains a point of controversy. Many have branded her a terrorist and a murderer, following the footsteps of her genocidal father. Certainly many thousands died at her hands or as a direct result of the actions she took. Others describe her as a coward, abrogating her responsibilities as a senator and risking the prosperity of the prism system as a result. That she manipulated both people and organizations to her own ends is undeniable. Others claim she lost her grip on sanity, perhaps because of guilt, becoming a victim of her own madness. They say the conspiracy was merely within her own mind and her death was tragic but meaningless. If so, she wasn't the first to be caught up in the psychosis of those who seek out the truth behind Raxler and the Dark Wheel. Critics point out that the cataclysmic Thargoid invasion she warned of never occurred, at least not in the way she described. But others hold her up as a heroine, a champion of freedom, a convert to promoting peace and stability regardless of political boundaries. She engendered a loyalty that approached a messianic furore at its peak. Thousands were prepared to lay down their lives for her, undertaking dangerous voyages out into the darkness to search for clues and mysteries. To them she became more than a leader. She was an inspirational symbol of hope and salvation. Some even dubbed her the patron saint of explorers. She proved herself a formidable adversary, not afraid to confront the highest authorities in both the Federation and the Empire. She notably humiliated Princess Ashling Duval during an unscheduled holofact transmission, and is reported to have beaten Admiral Denton Petraeus in a sword duel. In her time, she rubbed shoulders with President Zachary Hudson of the Federation and Prime Minister Edmund Mahone of the Alliance. Few remain who knew her personally. They tell of yet another aspect to her character. A woman who was fiercely loyal to her friends, acknowledged her mistakes, and tried to make them right, and cared deeply for the fates of those who entrusted their loyalty to her. Still, all agree she was short-tempered, arrogant, and self-assured. Thus, she remains an enigma. But there are few in the worlds of the Federation, the Empire, and the Alliance who haven't heard the name of Salome the erstwhile senator of the PRISM system. Lady Kahina Tejani Loren, born in 3275, passed away in 3303. Newton's Gambit Flight Assist some of us turn it off a little. Some of us turn it off a lot. Few of us leave it off for good. In this issue, we get to know a particularly ambitious group of pilots and speed junkies. With flight assist, a pilot flies their vessel in a manner not unlike an aeroplane in a standard atmosphere. Flight assist off allows a pilot to decouple their velocity vector from the direction they're facing, 
without the flight computer automatically opposing each input when it's released. The result is unnerving to the uninitiated. What used to be a vessel with a predictable flight behaviour is now an untamed beast trying to throw its rider. Enter Newton's Gambit. Space mad and borderline suicidal, but endlessly joyous and cheerful. Comprised of commanders hailing from all walks of life and founded sometime in 3303, Newton's Gambit is a group with only one common core principle. They are absolutely, unequivocally addicted to keeping flight assist turned off. They argue that, as most things in life, more is better. When it comes to controlling a ship in the depths of space, they might have a point. As it turns out, keeping flight assist off is actually a gateway to some otherwise inaccessible piloting abilities. Boosts that accelerate ships in unintuitive directions turns tighter than anything that should be possible. Flight paths that seem to upend the laws of physics. To the commanders of Newton's Gambit, this mockery of the traditional movement of spaceships is simply another Tuesday morning. To find out more about how they operate, your correspondent enlisted. Shortly after pledging, the training session began under the supervision of Gambit veteran, Commander Sanderling. Let me give you a note on gravity and inertia. It can be a little dangerous approaching a planet in a fast ship flight assist off. If your speed goes over a certain point, usually around the 500 meters per second mark, you may find that you can't actually brake. No matter what you do with the reverse thrust, the damn ship just won't slow down. It was noted that the speed indicator on your correspondent's heads-up display read well over 600. What's happening is that you've got too much inertia and your thrust won't brake you until you've got control over the descent. In practice, this means you got to stop falling and start climbing. The best way to do this is to keep your nose level and boost into your upward thrusters only. In a moment of sheer panic, given how the planetary canyons were fast approaching, several angled their ships up to the sky and applied generous thrust. Again, Sanderling bellowed some helpful advice. Don't pull the nose up to 90 degrees and try using your forward thrust. It doesn't work as well, and it looks silly. You can't see where you're going. If you're a little underpowered too, this will actually kill you. Too little, too late. As the Eagle Mark II pancaked into the ground, the first ejection of the night was had, the first insurance claim was made, and the tempo for what constituted a training session with Newton's Gambit was set. Even with the basic flight manoeuvres, every muscle memory instinct of flight was going to have to be retrained. Simply put, flight assist off unlocked a terrifying yet tantalising level of control. The night continued and little by little steady gains were made. The first thing that became clear was that the commanders of Newton's Gambit had mastered something that seemed unintuitive at first. Simultaneously using two or even three thrusters, each on a different axis of motion to achieve one continuous movement of a vessel. Sanderling explained. A lot of people might not realise this, but you can stack thrusters when flight assist off, greatly improving the ability to brake, for example. If you're just moving in a straight line and try to brake just using the single thruster that counteracts that movement, the entire system, well, it's a bit slow to respond. 
but flipped the ship sideways a bit, maybe a little nose down in orientation, and then apply a combination of two or three thrusters to counteract that original line. Hey presto, much, much better braking performance. Tidbits of advice like this slowly began to shape the training session's direction. Quickly, what was a group of pilots all vying for laughs and crazy stunts became a group of pilots studiously improving. Sanderling, Asiagu and other veterans and commanders shadowed the new trainees. They mimicked the trainees' manoeuvres and attempted to demonstrate what they were doing that was incorrect or simply unproductive. In their own way, each trainee began to grasp exactly how to move swiftly and smoothly. Now began a curious tradition for the pilots of Newton's Gambit, the mid-session ship exchange. Ordinarily, if a commander wishes to change their vessel to something else, the standard procedure is simply to dock at a station, check in with the storage team, and jump into one of their purchased and registered vessels. Such a pedestrian way of exchanging their vessels is beneath the commanders of Newton's Gambit. They chose the route of Demolition Derby, then taking a Renlock ride and ship exchange after yet another insurance claim. What you have to understand is that in this record, rebuys are a badge of honour. It shows that you've pushed yourself learning, or that you're downright mad. And frankly, we welcome both. The happy-go-lucky demeanour of these commanders is refreshing. Most commanders in the galaxy seek to minimise risk, while increasing the probabilities of success at every opportunity. Seldom do pilots seek to do the opposite and just charge ahead. Consequences be damned. Because of this, Newton's Gambit revealed itself to be more than just another mysterious faction with an agenda, but a ragtag group of pilots seeking nothing more than to fly at their limit and to share that limit with others who are also seeking to embrace the full potential of their ships. What started out as a struggle to keep a vessel under control had now morphed into an exercise in adrenaline and controlled insanity. Refreshed from a round of crashing interplanetary services, the Gambit commanders began to form an impromptu conga line, led by Sanderling. How about we do a bit of follow the leader, eh? A chorus of cheers rang out. As the group began flying through the canyons, faster and faster, the walls becoming ever narrower. Sanderling seemed in his element. I heard about people doing canyon running that just took things to a bit of an extreme. Sounded pretty good to me. I am like that, though. Speed is where it's at for me. I'm currently the lead pilot of the famous Okinura Sprint Challenge, having finally been persuaded by veteran racer Terracidic to have a go at it. Turns out, flood assist off works pretty good. As his eagle grazed the side of the canyon wall, lighting up the thin shields on his vessel, Sanderling bellowed. Environment and terrain can kill you faster than anything else in the galaxy. It was magnificent, an entourage of vessels barreling down the planetary canyon walls with a string of unsteady trainees in tow, an experience unlike any other in the galaxy. The group began to settle on the ledge of a canyon, some pilots electing to hover and spin in place, while most trainees decided that powering down the engines would be a welcome respite. They began swapping advice and practicing tricks. The pilots vied for attention, performing manoeuvres with their ships in front of the rookies. But after a time, Sanderling began the lesson again. Something many people don't realise is that boost actually improves whichever thruster you are engaging when you dump that sweet speed into the engines. A very interesting trick that I have only been learning recently is using the cargo scoop. 
which can be configured to lower only when you hold it down. To act as a speed brake in the middle of a boost, it basically caps your speed at about half of the usual boost speed but leaves all the boosted rotations and responses on vertical and lateral thrusts, turning your ship into a twitchy demon for a few seconds. Almost immediately, the yellow thrusters of Sanderling's Eagle Mark II lit up as the ship span around to do a quick, high-speed flyby. Pulling a graceful turn, he grazed a nearby sharp rock with the tip of his nose while holding perfect control over his vessel. After a few hours, the first session for the trainees came to a close. After orbiting a touring Beluga liner, leaving scorch marks on the walls of the canyon and enduring seemingly endless heart-stopping moments, the session came to an end and the pilots headed their separate ways. Oh, and for agility at lower speeds, the Core Dynamics Eagle is where it's at, 100%. The Gutemeyer version is sadly lacking in every single way in terms of agility at speed, which is really its supposed selling point. Shiny, but ill-conceived. Don't fall for that marketing hype. Don't take a bite of that apple, or something. And his final parting advice? You win by flying a spaceship like a spaceship. Not a plane. Rare Commodities Spotlight Pantar Prayer Sticks George Pantazis a singularly uninteresting system, a short 25 light-year hop from Seoul, has in recent years found relative commercial success. Despite a balmy tropical paradise of an Earth-like world, one of the earlier locations to be fully terraformed, it is in fact the proliferation of metal-rich bodies that has seen it become an important extraction and refinery location. George Pantazis Sr., entrepreneur and millionaire developer, obtained rights to the system early on in the exploitation of near-Earth systems, using funding from the mineral and raw material extraction to begin the terraforming of Planet Anew. Following in the philanthropic footsteps of George Cadbury, Andrew Carnegie and Joseph Reintree, Pantazis viewed this utopia of a planet as a place for his workforce to build a home, relax and enjoy life. What started as a worker's paradise has, over the centuries, become a playground for the spacefaring middle classes who buy up land and build villas and holiday homes. A steady gentrification of the planet pushed workers to migrate outwards in the bubble or to the plentiful work at the refineries in the system. Appalled at the change, a breakaway group of traditionalists staked a claim on another planet in the system, forming a colony of their own, a workers' commune, as a retreat for fellow industrial workers. Espousing spirituality as a form of relaxation, they created the Pantar Prayer Stick, and it began gaining popularity via word of mouth. Unlike the carved prayer sticks of indigenous populations on Old Earth, theirs was more akin to the burned incense sticks in temples, hippie gatherings and student bedrooms in the pre-interstellar era Earth. 
Made exclusively from oily, fragrant woods found only on a new, the Pantar Prayer Stick has a reputation for soothing the busy mind, relaxing the muscles and improving focus. Originally used by secular groups in pseudo-religious ceremonies, the stick's ability to improve focus was quickly snapped up by inventors, business people and designers. After a time, production was industrialised and moved to Zamka platform. Now regulated as a medicine, thus skirting the laws throughout the galaxy on the trade in narcotics, the supply of sticks is limited. This is primarily due to the incredibly slow growth of the Pantar tree and the limited period in its life cycle where it secretes the resins and oils that give the sticks their properties, though there are rumours that stockpiles at Zamka always appear to be just high enough for any passing ship. It is these items, much sought after by visionaries throughout the galaxy, that bring pilots to this important stop on the rare trader's route. And they fetch high prices throughout occupied space. The sacred nature of the sticks is, on the face of it, pure marketing, added flavour to an already heady scent. The monks of Van Manen Star, a permit lot system a short hop from George Pantazis, have been known to use the sticks in religious rituals. It forms an important part of the tourist draw to the system, a habit for those in habits, and is said to help them open their minds to the wonders of the galaxy and the mysteries of the cosmos. Of course, their range of balms, lotions and beard oils claiming to be made from Pantar prayer stick essential oils in the gift shop are all part and parcel of the modern marketing machine of any breakaway religious sect. There is no doubt that inner peace, relaxation and time taken to contemplate the bigger questions in life are good for general well-being and the resulting effects on blood pressure and reduction in recovery times from injury are all measurable. But the direct medicinal benefits of the Styx aroma are dubious at best. There is no great surprise to be found, therefore, in the system description which reinforces the hippier credentials of their key export. It reads, Pantar meaning always, and Zis meaning lie. This central star system has been known for its healing powers and paranormal phenomena. Peace and prosperity await all who venture within its borders. To quote from the trader's manual, These sacred items are said to bring wealth and prosperity to all who inhale the smoke as can now be seen by how prosperous George Pentazis has become. Now in the hands of the Hutton Truckers, eccentric trading cooperative and minor local power, they form part of their curated portfolio of rare goods, alongside Centauri Megagin, Indie Bourbon and, of course, their signature Hutton Mug. 
and can be found as part of care packages designed to enhance the leisure time of truckers, traders, explorers and adventurers throughout the Milky Way. Of course, many a pilot has taken the liberty of cracking open a case and been found sitting in their ship, bursting with crackpot ideas that would make Canon Interstellar boffins jealous. Surrounded by detailed sketches, notes and diagrams. And accompanied by fragrant, relaxing smoke. The Fall of Nova Imperium. This month, an Imperial pilot recounts the recent history of the galaxy's most high-profile insurgency. A year and a day after the death of Emperor Queso Morticantus at the hands of Admiral Denton Petraeus in the Senate House, Nova Imperium lost its home. It was not the first time. This time, loyal servants of the Emperor Promise Peresa and its six billion inhabitants would not be relinquished again. Lavigny's Legion was one of the first and most powerful squadrons to support Arissa Lavigny Duval's claim to the imperial throne after the murder of her father in 3301. Their support continued after her ascension to the throne made her banner that of the empire. Many years of support for the Lavigny family and the patronage of the emperor that it won them paid off. With a reputation as a leading imperial organization pulling commanders into her service, the Legion, led by Admiral Lucius Lavigny and a council of commander praetors, has grown from a military organization to a true government in control of 21 systems and over 26 billion imperial citizens. The Legion's influence is broad. They have empowered imperial governments, expanded the emperor's holdings, rebuffed federal incursions, exterminated Thargoids by the thousands, and most recently, silenced rebellion. Praetor Michael Brenton Lee, known to the Pilots' Federation as Commander St. Michael, explained, When Imperator Mordanticus started Nova Imperium, Lavinia's legion, like the Emperor, waited for the right moment to strike. This culminated in the major battle in Paresa, led by Dentimetraeus and Eupini Limited against Nova Imperium's Armada. Many Lavinians' legion pilots fought relentlessly day and night until Nova Imperium were destroyed the following week. While the Battle of Peresa in early January of 3305 culminated in the capture and death of Emperor Mordecantus, it was not the end of Nova Imperium nor of Hadrian Duval's controversial claim to the throne. Still, in the wake of battle, Forces across the Empire refocused on human conflicts with the Federation and pirates, while Lavigny's legion, in particular, cast its attention to the then-escalating war against the Thargoids. Yet while deployed against an inhuman threat, a past victory of the legion had come undone. Nova Imperium, under the force of Hadrian Duval's Nova Navy, had reversed the Empire's success in Peresa and had gone well beyond its initial holdings to capture four additional systems. 
Aichi Shinshians, Nocha, Weahukala, and Yupini, defeating Yupini Limited in their home system. Hadrian Duval had taken Mordecantus' title and adopted his isolationist purpose, demanding hostility between the superpowers in the name of the empire. He undermined the security of an empire in a bid for his own power. While that power never extended beyond Peresa and its surrounding systems, it was wielded effectively with a stable force, a stable government, and a population large enough to make Nova Imperium's defeat no small prospect. The Peresi Empire Consulate, empowered by the ambassadors and agents of the Empire's Imperial Diplomatic Corps to govern the region and curb the resurgent Nova Imperium, had failed. Praetor Michael made clear his reservations about the Legion's initial response. Originally, it was thought that even though they had come back, there was still little to no threat. I, on the other hand, knew what an ideology like this could do if left unchecked. A quiet but steady campaign was planned. The Legion, through its support of the Peresa Empire Consulate and other local loyalists, began a push, system by system, to undo the renegade Duval's gains. In mid-October, the first stage of the campaign began. The Legion would begin in Yupini, fighting to restore Yupini Limited. This did not take long. Resistance collapsed and order was restored to Yupini on the 4th of November. The Legion's next target would suffer greater consequences than Yupini. In Nocha, a system of 6.5 million. The Legion chose to employ criminals and assassins, supported by the Consulate and the Legion. Pilots of the Timurt drug empire were sent against Nova Imperium politicians and leaders, driving Hadrian Duval to declare war on the drug empire. The war lasted four days with Imperial pilots replacing criminal agents in a wave of force that swept Nova Navy aside. Vexilius Hassad explains. The Temurit drug empire was the easiest power to back in that system. Peresi Empire Consulate had no presence, and we could tackle Nova's influence faster by backing the drug empire. Ultimately, I'd rather have an anarchist government be in control of a system than a failed usurper. We can always fight it when circumstances make it necessary. Commander Rainbow, a now-retired supporter of Nova Imperium and the leader in Nova Navy, described the Empire's support for Timur drug empire as opportunistic. As far as I can tell, that was intended as a distraction to stop us from expanding from another system. We had been using that system for bounty hunting. While the Empire's victory in Nocha deprived Nova Navy pilots of hunting grounds to destroy criminals, it also deprived the system of law. Nocha remains free of Imperial control, whether in the name of the Emperor or her attempted usurper. Responding to questions on the future of Nocha's significant population, Lavigny's legion stated an intent to eventually install the Peresi Empire Consulate in the system when the time is right. 
H-E-Zinsians, a system of merely 3,300 souls, and Peresa itself fell shortly after. War in H-E-Zinsians was short and swift, with its sole station Ustroff's claim, claimed quickly by Upini Limited at the end of November. Conflict came to Peresa days later. In Peresa, however, Nova Imperium's defeat came in a different form. Instead of war, Peresa was won through peace. As the Legion and the Consulate rallied the system's loyal citizens, clients, and patrons to make their allegiance to the Emperor clear in a rebuttal of Hadrian Duval's claim. His base of power loss, the Imperium failed in Weyahukala on the 7th of December 3305. Hadrian Duval had become an Imperator without an Imperium. A campaign report written by Vexilius Hassad described a jubilant scene on Peresa. On the 31st of December, the Legion conducted a military parade in Peresa III. A multitude of Livinia's Legion ships could be seen flying over the night sky in a hue of purple engine trails. Smaller fighters flew lower in formation and turned in sequences. On the ground, hundreds of soldiers marched, representing various factions such as Paresi Empire Consulate, Lavinia's Legion, and elements of the Imperial Navy Marines. Dressed in their resplendent white battle gear, they cheered while remaining in perfect formation. It seemed the Legion's victory was final, and Duval had been defeated, the report continued. With Hadrian Duval on the run, Nova Imperium, having become bankrupt and having no systems under their control, has effectively been annihilated. The Peresi Empire Consulate has taken charge of ensuring that they will never rise again. Yet they did. Barely two weeks after the victory parade of Lavinia's Legion and Peresi Empire Consulate in Peresa, the Loyalist had once again lost. Nova Imperium's flag was raised again over Peresa on the 14th of January, followed by an overt declaration of war by the Admiral Lucius Lavigny one week later. These traitorous scum have once more reared their head in the same place it was squashed a while ago, with what seems to be a renewed spirit. The Legion will personally see to it that that spirit is crushed. Emperor Hadrian Duval had not made any public comments in weeks. Nova Navy and the Imperium were both leaderless, with Commander Rainbow still retired. The Legion called it a hostile takeover, but whether through guile or force, Nova Imperium had retaken the system. And true to Admiral Lavini's word, the Emperor's forces retook it less than two weeks later, this time with commitments by the Legion and its praetors to ensure Peresa would remain of the Empire and not of the Imperium forever. Following this commitment and victory, Praetor Michael announced a new campaign to oust Nova Imperium from any system where it has a presence, if practicable. He and his comrades had developed a plan to remove the Imperium from any station it still controls, the Empire and its loyal squadrons and factions will doubtless support him, but there can be no doubt what has fallen may still rise. 
If Nova Imperium endures far beyond the anniversary of Mordecantus' death, it would not be a new challenge for this emperor. Arissa Lavigny Duval has struggled for legitimacy since before she ascended to the throne. There was no doubt at her coronation that her father, Hengis Duval, had intended to marry her mother, Florence Lavigny, legitimizing Arissa in the process, but this did not come to pass. With the old emperor's assassination by Brendan Paul Darius forcing the Senate to select the new emperor by choice rather than accept her by succession. The Senate's decision was called by the emperor's dawn, for whom Darius was an agent, a desecration of the traditions of the empire. Like Nova Imperium, Emperor's Dawn had presented an ultra-traditionalist view of the empire and had built a network of powerful contacts. Like Nova Imperium, Emperor's Dawn decried Orissa as false and female, arguing that the true emperor should be male. And like Nova Imperium, Emperor's Dawn proved incredibly durable. Yet where Emperor's Dawn was a network of dispersed cells executing terrorist attacks and assassinations, Nova Imperium sought to govern systems directly and to present a clear alternative to Emperor Lavigny Duval beyond the faceless leader of Emperor's Dawn. Dashmandi and Mausk in September of 3301, Namari, Tabaldak, LTT-874, Shambhala and Shivari in October, Kosalas in December. Cell after cell of Emperor's Dawn forces and operatives were discovered and destroyed, breaking its back as an insurgent organization. No true leaders were ever found, and no new emperor was ever named or offered by the organization, nor captured by the Empire. With the unnamed usurper it held never uncovered, it is impossible to say whether Emperor's Dawn was truly destroyed or if it was instead driven underground. When Emperor's Dawn first surfaced before Orissa had even been crowned, Imperial commanders in high halls whispered that perhaps it was Harold Duval who Emperor's Dawn intended to place on the throne. Harold had been declared insane by his father and cut out of the succession in response to his hedonism and allegedly his unorthodox views on slavery, matching those of his daughter, Aisling Duval. Little is known of what an empire led by Harold might have looked like, and his personal views are rarely on record. If rumors that he would have led a more liberal empire were true, he would have been an unlikely match for the extreme conservatism of Emperor's Dawn. Yet as the only living male Duval at the time, there were few alternatives. This is no longer true. Harold Duval still lives, but so does his nephew Hadrian. The isolationist ultra-traditionalism espoused by Emperors Mordecantus and Hadrian Duval are familiar. Networked, nameless insurgency failed for Emperor's Dawn, but only after many campaigns. Direct governance of imperial populations failed for Nova Imperium, but only after bloodshed in the Senate and constant effort in Parasa. The truth is that Emperor Arissa Lavigny Duval's reign is not secure, and may never be. 
Marriage and issue may make succession from her line clear, but as long as Hadrian Duval lives, the risk of civil war remains. Whether one and the same or not, Emperor's Dawn and Nova Imperium both posed credible threats. And while loyal commanders like those of Lavini's Legion have made solemn commitments in support of the Emperor, they may find themselves defending those commitments against challenges from within the Empire for as long as she and Hadrian both live. Featured Expedition Perseus Reach and Orion Expedition Two expeditions, setting off almost one month apart, share a waypoint and will meet up there. This will be one of the first times this has happened in the history of group exploration. Sometimes, big things start small. The Perseus Reach expedition began with a ship, the humble Falcon de Lacy Sidewinder. The following question from Commander Rangero appeared on the Pilots Federation forums. How much jump range can be squeezed out of a Sidewinder? Commander Dr. Nagi, a veteran explorer and expedition organizer, got to work to find out. He discovered that, given the appropriate outfitting and engineering, every current small ship is now able to jump to OEVASI SG-YD0, more widely known as Samotis Beacon. Just three years ago, during the Distant Worlds 3302 expedition, this would have been impossible. Dr. Nagi, the chief organizer of the expedition. I contacted Chunk Satome and Henker 77 because I knew they would be up for such a crazy idea. Looking at charts from the Galactic Mapping Project, the explorers found the Perseus arm to be rather devoid of marks, indicating few discovered points of interest. They decided that their experimental expedition would go through the Perseus arm towards the other end of the galaxy. Only small ships would be eligible. Because the expedition is restricted in this way, it faces different challenges from other expeditions. Small ships have less space for modules and smaller fuel capacity after all. As a result, fuel rats and hull seals will be of even greater importance than on other expeditions. Because of this, the expedition was initially intended as a challenge for veteran explorers. However, contrary to the organizers' expectations, it attracted a large mix of veterans and newcomers alike. The Perseus Reach expedition left Sol on February 8, 3306, and will visit a total of 13 waypoints, start and end points included. Activities at these waypoints are not yet fully planned, and will be decided as the expedition progresses. There are ideas for events at the waypoints, the main focus, however, will be on exploration, according to expedition organizer Dr. Nagi. The fleet is scheduled to reach its final destination, Samotis Beacon, on July 4, 3306. Orion the Hunter is one of the oldest constellations to be mentioned in human history. Its bright stars are easily visible to the naked eye from Earth. And because it straddles the celestial equator, it can be seen from every habitable part of the planet. As a result, it had many names throughout history. The Sumerians conceived of it as a sheep, the Egyptians saw their god Osiris, and the Germanic tribes saw a plough. The ancient Greeks called it Orion, the great hunter, who was changed into a constellation after his death. We still refer to it by its Greek name. 
The development of better astronomical instruments led to the discovery of other well-known objects in this constellation, Barnard's Loop and a Horsehead Nebula. The former is notorious for being close to the Coal 70 sector from where the Thargoids are rumoured to originate. Several of the stars in the constellation of Orion are well known, Betelgeuse, Alnitak, Mentaka, Regal and Bellatrix are researchable by explorers without specifically outfitted ships because of their reasonable closeness to inhabited space. Even though it is the same spiral arm that contains the bubble, the Orion Cygnus arm feels underexplored when looking at the markings on the galactic map. Only a few stellar and planetary features are catalogued in this region. One guardian ruin is known to be out there, but there could be many more discoveries to be made perhaps even of human colonization projects. The Orion expedition's aim is to fill in the gaps on the map. Starting at the aforementioned Betelgeuse, the expedition will head north along the Orion Cygnus arm. Expedition organizer Commander Yannick stated that the ultimate goal would be a thorough investigation of the vast Orio-Persian conflux. This region, where the Orion Cygnus and Perseus arms of the galaxy meet, has a high star density and is, in the wording of the expedition's description, vast and essentially underexplored. Previous expeditions into the region have already discovered many interesting sites. Those, however, might only scratch the surface of this treasure trove of possible discoveries. For this reason, most of the expedition's waypoints are located in the conflux region to offer the possibility of thorough surveys. There are many activities planned for the different waypoints along the way, most of which include surface reconnaissance vehicles. These games include racing, cliff jumping, mountain climbing and general shenanigans. The waypoints are also intended to serve as rally points for both expeditions, where commanders can meet up and share their stories of their journey. The Orion expedition departed from Betelgeuse on January 12, 3306. There are 15 waypoints, start and end points included. The end point for the expedition will be Explorer's Anchorage, near the center of the galaxy. The scheduled arrival at the last waypoint is on April 27, 3306. Both expeditions share one waypoint, Eol's Gry PG-E B15-4, also known as Bendurian's Present. Close to where the Persian and Orion Cygnus arms begin to diverge is a red and blue emission nebula. Body AB-1B has high-pressure carbon dioxide geysers. In the future, this system will not only be known for its interesting astronomical and geological features. The Orion and Perseus Reach expeditions plan to meet up there, 35,400 light-years from Sol. Such massive rendezvous have happened only very few times since the introduction of the frameshift drive in 3300. The most notable occasion was certainly the meetup between Commander Aramis returning from an eight-week mission to survey the galactic outer rim and Commander Rangero crossing the galaxy in a sidewinder. This happened on March 1st, 3301, 43,000 light-years from Sol, in the Eactane's GN-WC1-6 system known as Rendezvous Point. I still vividly remember that day. Commander Alec Turner recalls what happened. 
Nothing like it, to the best of my knowledge, had happened before. Loads of us watched the live stream transfixed as they slowly jumped towards a prearranged meeting point. The moment of their meeting was absolutely nail-biting. Everyone feared that a single bump could finish off Eremus's canopy. R4, often a fairly contentious character who fuelled his journey with whisky and politics, sat motionless as Eremus, the consummate explorer and serious scientist, gently approached his ship. It was like watching the first moon landing. Just wonderful. The organisers of the Orion and Perseus Ridge expeditions, Yannick and Dr Nagy, have been friends for a while. When they found out their expeditions would cross the same region at approximately the same time, they decided to adjust waypoint rosters and schedules to make this special event possible. A rendezvous between commanders on an expedition is already a special thing. This correspondent experienced it himself when he was on the Distant Worlds 2 expedition last year. A meetup between two different expeditions, however, must surely be something else. Yannick explains. It seemed like a fun event to have. These two groups of commanders meeting up far into the black and very far from human civilization. It has a bit of an untamed frontier feeling to it. The meetup should result in a number of new friendships forming. As every commander who has ever been on an expedition will know, you come home with more comrades and friends than you left with, often many more. On top of these social aspects, there is one very practical use to this meetup. As the Perseus Reach expedition is restricted to small ships only, this meetup with a number of larger ships presents an opportunity to stock up unnecessary supplies like food, water, limpets, and coffee. After this meetup, the Perseus Reach expedition will head towards the edge of the galaxy. It is a truly remote and lonely destination where every little bit of these supplies will be needed. The Law Tour, 3306. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. President John F. Kennedy, President of the United States of America, Earth, Seoul, 12th September 1962. Humanity's drive for exploration did not start with space. It took many millennia for us to chart the world we all originated from. Voyagers were undertaken in primitive seagoing vessels, alongside expeditions across vast tracts of wilderness with virtually no mechanical aid whatsoever. It took centuries, but eventually maps were drafted, added to and finally completed. By the latter part of the 20th century, our ancestors, all confined to Earth, knew the confines of their planet in great detail. Space had always beckoned. There were astrologers and astronomers who'd looked up into the night sky and wondered what was there, long before we had the understanding or the capability to do anything about it. The 20th century was marked by huge conflict, but it drove a technological impulse that enabled people to leave the confines of Earth for the first time. Laughably primitive by the standards of today, chemically propelled rockets lifted those intrepid explorers into orbit, 
and before that century was out, to the moon. Humanity became a spacefaring culture, tentatively looking beyond the frail boundaries of the planet that had nurtured it. Yet humanity had unlocked vast energies, power that could be used for good or for ill. The next century was marked by the worst conflict in the long history of our race, the Third World War. One which devastated old Earth and broke the established order of the political organisations that had once seemed permanent. Our original homeworld was never the same again. Humanity paused, drew breath and recovered, pushing on outwards into the darkness. History never waits, but continues to be written as the future becomes the past. Many commanders today will be unaware of the crises, events and locations that have shaped the galaxy they navigate round. Voyage across the bubble today can be achieved in timescales that would shock and bewilder our early ancestors. Our intrepid explorers have voyaged to the other side of the galaxy and returned intact, cataloguing countless wonders in the process. Traders ply their wares across historic systems with little knowledge of how those systems came to be. The bubble has been shaped by war, conflict, politics, conspiracy, sacrifice and outrage. There are dark secrets hidden in the void. To foster greater understanding of our joint legacy, an historic tour is being arranged to which all commanders are cordially invited. It's planned to commence on April the 2nd, 3306, and participants are encouraged to make their way to Earth orbit in the Sol system to rendezvous with the tour guide. The tour will take the form of a series of guided journeys, stopping along the way to visit key locations in our history. Unsurprisingly, the initial rendezvous will be concerned with the early history of Earth itself, leading to the formation of the Federation. The tour will then proceed chronologically, culminating in a summary of more contemporary events. We understand that along the way, commanders will be introduced to the most notable events in our past, including the first colonisation of an extrasolar system, the first interstellar conflict, the formation of the Empire, pre-hyperspace exploration, the introduction of hyperdrive technology, the rise and fall of Galcop, the Far Colonies and the Old Worlds, and the more recent formation of the Alliance. Along the way, other, more esoteric topics will also be covered. The tragedies that marked the early days of the Federation, the solemn fate of the generation ships, the unexplained fossils and artefacts found by early archaeologists, and even what happened during our first contact with those most terrifying of adversaries, the Thargoids. Even that great hyperbolic mystery, that of Raxler itself, is on the itinerary though whether or not our guide will be able to provide any new information regarding this absurd myth remains to be seen. Intriguingly, the rendezvous location for this leg of the tour is currently listed as redacted. Make of that what you will. The itinerary also promises an investigation into the Intergalactic Naval Reserve Arm, along with more recent discoveries including the long-dead race of beings known as the Guardians. The tour is scheduled to run for 12 weeks, with weekly updates being broadcast across the galaxy. Commanders can tune in to the broadcast, watch hollow vids at their convenience, or join the tour in person by travelling to the rendezvous systems each week at a set time. The tour 
will be taking in certain locations that require interstellar permits from the Pilots' Federation. It is thus recommended that commanders investigate the requirements for acquiring these permits in advance, or utilise multi-crew facilities to join other commanders who have them. The permits in question are for visiting Sol, Akinar and Alioth. The guide himself is an historian of sorts. He's a curious fellow, something of a recluse, allegedly disposing of unwanted visitors with a small plasma accelerator. He originates from the Earth-like world Eurydice in the Eulexia system, where his ancestors staked a claim in the year 3264. He does not appear to hold any academic qualifications, but professes an infectious enthusiasm for documenting and communicating humanity's spacefaring history since the 20th century. He is known to fly a vintage Cobra Mark III of the Cowell and McGrath era, which goes by the name of the Robert Holdstock. A variety of special guests are expected to co-host some of the transmissions, drawing on sage experience from across the bubble. The tour will be independent of any political affiliation, and despite protests from federal and imperial officers in particular, will seek to expose the unvarnished truth about the past without spin. It should prove to be an exciting venture, and we recommend that commanders review the published itinerary and make plans accordingly. The tour promises to shine a light into the past and illuminate the personalities, events and locales for the current generation of commanders in a way that has not taken place for several years. For those commanders wishing to understand the political structure of the bubble as it exists today, past interactions with the Thargoids, the still unsolved mysteries of the universe, or even enhance their knowledge of the technology that's shaped our lives, this is the tour for you. There is no cost of entry, but the guide has mentioned in passing that he is partial to ice cream with thrumpberry flavouring, Leistian evil juice and Anlian gin. The itinerary can be found at www.drewagar.com. Stations you haven't visited. Explorers Anchorage. The revolution of the frameshift drive has brought humanity to a second mass frenzy of exploration. What was once the work of days or weeks is now accomplished in mere minutes. Brave commanders of the Pilots' Federation are spending weeks and even months at a time in the black, often alone and without aid. These explorers return with a wealth of data to be sold to Universal Cartographics, adding to the collective knowledge of our galaxy bit by bit. Still, even the frontiers are being settled if only via token gestures. In a show of solidarity, the exploration community pooled their resources to construct Explorer's Anchorage in early 3305. The Ocellus Starbase is a far cry from the hard scrabble outposts that dot the road to Colonia. It is located a single jump away from Sagittarius A star, considered by many a de rigueur space mark for the Sirius Explorer. Such is the state of exploration, that many of those who visited the fabled black hole aren't explorers, but tourists. Glimpses of sad Kruger luxury are increasingly common among the worn hulls of anacondas and asp explorers. The station itself has a remarkable history, short though it is. Neither a superpower nor a mega corporation was responsible for its construction, but a grassroots effort derived from the Distant Worlds 2 expedition. The initiative to construct the station began in earnest on January 17, 3305, 
with 3 million tons of materials delivered in short order. Massive thruster nacelles were affixed to the main docking hub, and on February 21st, the core modules arrived at their final destination in Stumay FG-Y D7561. Resources from local systems were mined to expand Anchorage's services in March, bringing it up to the standards of the bubble. The station itself orbits an Earth-like world, lush and inviting. As of now, there are no major colonies on its surface, but that will almost certainly change in the coming years. Explorer's Anchorage itself is like an oasis in the desert. It is a welcome sight for explorers and tourists alike, a similar mankind's reach when it is determined to extend it. To set foot within the Ocellus is to celebrate the spirit of those who made its existence possible, and all who came before them as well. The atmosphere within Explorer's Anchorage is remarkable. There is a sense of not only competence, but pride exuded by its inhabitants. This station is new, and its crew works around the clock to keep its systems working flawlessly. Bulkhead walls are polished and clean, and there is little braggadocio among those settling down for a drink. To simply be there is an accomplishment that speaks for itself. The same is true of the local scientific community. Explorer's Anchorage is as much of a scientific installation as it is for a haven for weary interstellar wanderers. Only the best and brightest are granted the privilege of directly studying Sagittarius A star. So too are there creature comforts that a commander's life seldom affords. The trappings of the bubble are a welcome distraction for those who have spent months alone. Nightclubs, restaurants and hollow theatres seem like odd allocations of resources so deep into the frontier, yet those who built the station were forward thinkers. Rumours of further, even scandalous diversions are never far from one's ears, as are unofficial markets for prohibited goods. Explorer's Anchorage is by no means a criminal emporium, but it is a remarkable microcosm of the cooperative, self-enforcing harmony that is possible absent a formal government. It is impossible to gaze upon the Earth-like world from one of the Anchorage's several observation platforms and not allow one's imagination to wander. The planet, still officially known by its awkward Universal Cartographics designation, seems ideal for the nexus of a new enclave of humanity, one even more remote than Colonia. Still, it might be difficult for such an enclave to truly remain independent. Indeed, in the age of the frameshift drive, the journey between Earth and Sagittarius A star is the effort of a brief few days. Ships come and go from Anchorage much like any other station of its size. Yet, there is something special about gazing from one's canopy glass upon this particular Ocellus. The stars in the very centre of the galaxy are bright and dense. The locale positively teems with stellar energy. Again, the imagination is stimulated. Surely, this glorious core is a worthy seat of humanity. The solar system is provincial in comparison. Yet, to gaze into the starry void is also to be sobered. Explorer's Anchorage is an island, not a continent. Even with the comfort of its massive hull, life hangs by a razor edge. Dreams and labour are the fuel upon which places like this run. The former impotent without the latter, and the latter rendered soulless without the former. Humanity faces many challenges. Natural disasters, the brinkmanship of superpowers, and the inhuman threat of the Thargoids all conspire to undermine the unity and peace that preserve us. Yet, 
in the hearts of explorers can be found the very best of the human essence. The drive to explore, to challenge, and to make the dreams of one age the reality of the next. Thank you for listening to issue 26 of Sagittarius Eye magazine. This issue featured articles written by Adernis, Alexander Sepulveda, Andrew Gasper, Drew Wagar, Lord Tyvin, Mac Winston, Missaniavent, M. Lehman, and Vantian. This audio edition featured the voices of Beetlejude Catisfaction, Aidlevice, MacGyver, Poet Sparrow, Scott Cleverdon, Spidey002, and Wotherspoon, and was edited by Wotherspoon. Music was composed and performed by Dustin Midnight Driscoll and Toko So. We would like to thank our Patreon subscribers for their continued support of our efforts to entertain and inform the galaxy by commanders for commanders. For copies of back issues of our magazine, please visit our website at sagittarius-i.com. Sagittarius I was created using assets and imagery from Elite Dangerous with the permission of Frontier Developments PLC for non-commercial purposes. It is not endorsed by nor reflects the views and opinions of Frontier Developments and no employee of Frontier Developments was involved in the making of it. Sagittarius.